So good evening and thank you for joining me tonight. This evening I'd like to continue exploring the theme that I introduced last week, namely the seven factors of awakening, which as I think you all know are these seven highly skillful mental qualities that when they're cultivated, developed and balanced with each other, they provide the optimum conditions for insight to arise. So as I mentioned last week, even though all the various practices that are given in the Satipatthana Sutta are intended to prepare our hearts and minds to help these seven factors to develop, generally speaking, we tend to hear a lot more about the five hindrances, those mental states that get in the way of insight. We hear more about them than the awakening factors which support insight. So I'm happy to have this opportunity to explore them in a bit more detail in the coming weeks. So not all of you were here last week, and even those of you who were, you may have forgotten. So just to run through what the seven factors are. And similar to last time, I'll just name them quite slowly. And the invitation as you hear each one is just to see if there is a subtle sense of recognition or resonance with some of them, or possibly others, they might not feel so clear. And even if you did this last week, it will be different now because of impermanence. What's present in the heart and the mind now will have changed. And you might even recognize this time some qualities that feel more alive tonight that maybe weren't so available last time. Possibly, too, you might notice that some feel a little stronger now than they did a week ago. And just remembering that we try to do this without judgment, just taking it in as useful information for the development of our practice. So these are the seven. Sati, or mindfulness. Investigation. Energy, joy or rapture, piti, tranquility, samadhi or mental absorption, and equanimity. So those are the seven, and as I mentioned last week, there's a reciprocal relationship between these seven skillful qualities and the unbeneficial qualities of the five hindrances. So when the hindrances are present, the awakening factors are absent, and vice versa. Most of us, because of the mind's inbuilt negativity bias, tend to pay more attention to the hindrances because they're unpleasant. But as we learn how to work with the hindrances and they get less of a grip on us, we have more of an opportunity to train in recognizing and strengthening the awakening factors. And we don't actually have to wait. This is good news. We don't have to wait for the hindrances to disappear completely before we start to engage with the awakening factors. In fact, one very powerful antidote to the hindrances is to actively bring in and strengthen the awakening factors, especially the first two, which are mindfulness and investigation, sati and dhamma-vichaya. So it's these two that I'd like to look at a little more closely this evening, beginning with mindfulness, sati. Now, all of you here are highly experienced meditators, so perhaps you're wondering what more could possibly be said about mindfulness. And actually, I was wondering the same thing as I was preparing this talk. But I did just want to point out that as mindfulness has become so mainstream, in some settings it's lost some of its original meaning and purpose. So I just want to remind us how mindfulness is practiced in the context of the Satipatthana Sutta. 
So in the first three establishments of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, of Vedana or feeling tone, and the mind, with those three, the general instruction is mindfulness is just an objective knowing of what is. So we're not in any way evaluating or getting involved with our experience. We're simply knowing it exactly as it is. When we come to the fourth establishment of mindfulness, so mindfulness of dhammas, there's a shift in the relationship. And with some of the practices within that foundation, it's no longer just about simply being with whatever arises. There's some degree of discernment, of evaluation, of engaging with experience as I said last week, to shape or to craft the heart-mind in a beneficial way, away from suffering towards freedom. So we start to recognize in this fourth establishment of mindfulness, if the hindrances are present, how to help them release, so that instead the seven awakening factors can come into play. So now we're starting to see the interplay or interaction between mindfulness, the first awakening factor, and investigation, the second awakening factor. We want to understand whether our experience is a source of suffering and potentially leading to more suffering, or the opposite, whether it's a beneficial state leading to more ease and happiness, peace and freedom. And this is the investigation aspect of the practice. So in the words of Sedo Utejaniya, who many of you know, mindfulness alone is not enough. Mindfulness alone is not enough. It needs to be supported by this awakening factor of investigation, Dhamma to give it the Pali name. And it's this dhamma vichaya, the investigation, that makes sure that mindfulness is channeled in the direction of clear seeing, of insight, of wisdom, so that it's more than just a simple technique for reducing stress or improving our performance at work or in sports and so on. And so just to acknowledge, though, that of all of these seven factors, Dhammavichaya is perhaps the least clear and the least well-defined in the text. So I checked out quite a range of different translations of this term, Dhammavichaya, and most of them sound fairly vague, fairly abstract, at least to my ears. So I'll read you just a few of these translations from teachers and scholars like Morris Walsh and Bhikkhu Analyo and Bhikkhu Bodhi, Tanasaro Bhikkhu, Bhikkhu Sujato, Sujato and others. So Dhamma Vichaya is translated as investigation of states, investigation of dhammas, investigation of phenomena, analysis of qualities, keen investigation of the dhamma, investigation of the nature of things, and investigation of principles. Now, possibly like me, on hearing this list, you might be wondering, what? What are we investigating? What and how? How do we investigate? And the description of this awakening factor in the suttas doesn't give that much help. So, for example, in the Anapanasati Sutta, in relation to this awakening factor, it says, abiding, thus mindful, one investigates and examines that state with wisdom, and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. On whatever occasion, abiding thus mindful, a practitioner investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. On that occasion, the investigation of states awakening factor is aroused in them, and they develop it, and by development it comes to fulfillment in them. Got it? <laughs> So it's not so easy, at least for me, to get a handle on what this is pointing to. 
There's definitely, there's clearly a connection with wisdom. And so we need to bring in the Noble Eightfold Path, specifically right or wise view. And that brings us to the distinction between skillful and unskillful qualities. What causes suffering? What releases suffering? So some of you know or have studied with Bhikkhu Analyo, the German scholar, monk, and meditator who's written several books on the Satipatthana Sutta. And he says this particular awakening factor could be compared to using a magnifying glass. The rim that holds this magnifying glass is the teachings. And these are the basic reference point for investigating whatever is happening in the present moment. Such investigation of dhammas finds its expression in an attitude of keen interest and inquisitiveness, a wish to follow things up and really understand them. Investigation of dhammas finds its nourishment in clearly distinguishing between what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And it also provides a sense of direction for investigation. And this, above all, is what needs to be consistently investigated and examined. So what Bhikkhu Analyo is pointing to here is a couple of things. One is the mental attitude that's associated with this factor of investigation. So he describes it as keen interest, inquisitiveness. You could say a wholesome desire to know. And when we're experiencing it, there's a brightness an alertness, an engagement that's present. And the other aspect he's pointing to is clearly distinguishing between what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. Now in English, when we hear this term investigation, I think for most of us it can sound like quite a cognitive exercise, an invitation to use our intellect to figure things out. And of course, in everyday life, this is a very useful function of the mind. And even in practice, at times it can be helpful to take some time to contemplate these teachings in perhaps a more academic way, through sutta study, for example. But in the context of formal meditation practice, what's usually more helpful is not so much the intellectual investigation, but keeping our exploration more simple and direct, based in immediate sense-based experience. Because one of the dangers of going too much into a more head-based investigation is, at least in my experience, it can be very easy to get caught up in intellectual analysis and potentially fuel unhelpful proliferation or even, at times, the hindrance of skeptical doubt. So just to try to bring this investigation of investigation down to basics now and to a very direct method of practicing with this awakening factor. To begin with, just a very simple technique that I use in my own practice, particularly at those times when I realize that my mindfulness has been gone for a while, where I've got caught up in a struggle of some kind. And I stop and ask myself three questions as a simple way of reconnecting with my immediate experience and getting a clearer sense of what's going on, investigating it directly. So the first question is, what's happening in the body right now, in my physical experience? You can do that right now. Just take a moment. Notice any physical sensations that might be present. Just noticing whatever's most obvious. So it's taking a kind of snapshot of the state of the body now. Maybe there's a slight ache in the lower back or a sense of heaviness or lightness, warmth or coolness, tingling or throbbing. Just noticing those sensations, however they are. 
And then once you've got a sense of what's happening in the body, you can ask the same question in relation to mental activity. What's happening in the heart-mind, in my emotional and mental experience? And again, you can do that right now, just to notice any kind of mental activity. Thoughts or emotions, moods, mind states. Just discerning, not judging. Taking that kind of snapshot of the state of the heart and the mind. And then the third question is, how am I relating to this experience? Or what's the attitude in the mind about it? So with this question, we're zooming out a bit to notice if there is an underlying attitude that might be coloring how we're relating to our experience. So possibly some disliking or subtle resistance to it. Maybe the opposite, some kind of wanting, greed, clinging. Or possibly some of the other hindrances, dullness or disconnection or restlessness or anxiety and so on. So again, you might just take a moment to notice whatever's happening now. How are you relating to it? So we take this very momentary snapshot and then that last question can show if there's any hindrance present. If there's any kind of struggle, then that's usually a sign that there's some kind of hindrance present in the mind. So you might just quickly run through. Is it sense desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, skeptical doubt, or some combination of all of the above, which is known as a multiple hindrance attack. And these can be quite common. (laughs) At least in my own experience, the hindrances don't tend to show up nicely one at a time. They tend to hunt in packs. And so if we become aware of this kind of experience, we need to make as much space in the heart and mind as possible. Not indulging it, not feeding it. Easier said than done because even the term hindrance can create the hindrance of aversion, the tendency to take the hindrances personally and to believe that they're wrong and they're bad and they shouldn't be happening and they need to be got rid of as quickly as possible. So in terms of terminology, I have really appreciated uh, how the English Dharma teacher, the late Rob Brabea, refers to the hindrances as, quote, manifestations of our humanity. And you might notice if there's any shift when you hear that term, manifestations of our humanity, rather than hindrances. And sometimes when I share this with people on retreat and they come into the practice meetings, they'll come in and say, I've just been manifesting so much humanity today. And it's good to be able to have a sense of lightness because taking the hindrances personally only makes them stronger. And instead we try to meet them with kind curiosity and to recognize that they're not me, they're not mine, they're not who I am. They're just visiting afflictive states. And bringing that kind of awareness to them, we're strengthening both mindfulness and investigation. And so as the practice deepens and we're able to release perhaps some of those more surface level of hindrances, at some point we're likely to encounter afflictive emotions that maybe feel quite entrenched. And I'm naming this because it's quite common on longer retreats 
where we do have more time to settle in and to make the most of the silence and the simplicity and the solitude. Many people find that naturally, organically, some of those more difficult and painful and entrenched patterns in the heart and the mind, they start to reveal themselves. So still in the spirit of investigation, I'd like to give just a few practical suggestions now for ways that we might work with these more stuck or repetitive or deeply conditioned patterns. Perhaps, for example, familiar forms of anxiety or anger or sadness or fear or shame. All of these can emerge in the context of a longer retreat. And when they do, they provide us with a very powerful opportunity to meet them with wisdom and compassion so that they can release. And in their place, the awakening factors can arise. So, just want to acknowledge that that is easier said than done. And also to acknowledge that these techniques I'm going to offer now, they might not be relevant for everyone here at this time. So if that's true for you, then you're welcome to just let the words wash through and possibly strengthen the awakening factor of equanimity. So in terms of afflictive emotions, the first principle we want to keep in mind is that we're always trying to stay in some degree of balance in relation to them. So all through his teaching, the Buddha put a lot of emphasis on what he called the middle way. So in terms of difficult emotions, we can think of that as being the balance between, on the one hand, not avoiding, ignoring, repressing, but on the other, not feeding or indulging or getting overwhelmed by them. And to find that balance, we need to investigate and to listen to ourselves, to pay attention to the context that we're in, and to be aware of our capacity in any moment to manage these challenges. And sometimes, when the timing feels right, we might choose to take a session of meditation to investigate more directly What is going on here? What's underneath the surface level of these afflictive thoughts and emotions to see if we can free the deeper conditioning that might be feeding them? So how might we do this as an actual practice? I have a a technique that I've developed in my own practice that I somewhat jokingly call post-mortem mindfulness. And post-mortem mindfulness is a way of trying to understand after the fact some kind of intense reaction that we may have had with the intention of getting more clarity about how we got triggered in the first place and how we might prevent that same reaction from coming up again under similar circumstances. So technically, post-mortem mindfulness is not classical mindfulness because, as we know, mindfulness is usually in the present moment. So we could think of it more as a form of inquiry or investigation. It's a way of directly bringing together mindfulness and investigation. And it involves bringing awareness to what's happening in the body and the heart-mind now as we recall, recreate what happened in that earlier reactivity. So this technique, it works best for exploring some of those more habitual responses or intense reactions that feel like they're based in some kind of deep conditioning. Perhaps maybe a wave of anger or fear or sadness that feels like it's out of proportion to the situation that triggered it, but possibly also feels quite familiar in some way. So in my own practice, at those times when I become aware of something like that, 
I wait until the conditions are right. In other words, I have some time, some space, some privacy, and then I just go back over what happened. Almost like a movie, replaying it imaginatively in slow motion, frame by frame. And as I do this, I'm trying to do it with as much embodied mindfulness as possible. So staying out of the intellect and all of its thoughts and assessments and judgments and arguments and beliefs and views and opinions and so on. We don't want to strengthen those. We don't want to dig those ruts in the mind even deeper. So trying to stay with the bodily experience as much as possible. And for me, it's often helpful to do this lying down to help that connection to the body. And I might do it by putting one hand on my belly, one hand on my heart, just so I can feel in to any sensations in the body more directly. And then as I bring to mind that situation, I'm tuning into the body in as much detail as possible. The body and the heart. And it's almost like I'm listening to other channels of information beyond the intellect. And over time, as I do this, sometimes there are new physical sensations, sometimes images or unexpected memories or associations. And if I'm patient, sometimes more subtle or complex emotions start to show themselves. And all of this is new information that can help me understand how my default habit patterns and reactivity took over. And then I'm in a better position next time to be able to recognize those early warning signals and not go down that same path again, not strengthen that same pattern again. Now, it takes training to do this. It won't usually just happen the first time we we try it. It's often very difficult to stay with our afflictive emotions without going up into the intellect as a way of distancing ourselves from the discomfort. And because the situation is painful in some way, often when we do touch into it and experience an afflictive emotion, the first response in the body, the mind, is to contract, to tighten up, to resist or brace against it. And that tightening and contracting tends to make the whole experience more uncomfortable. So part of what we can train in here is learning to release that resistance as gently as we can, not intensify the contraction. And as a support for this, as a reminder, I sometimes use a mantra that I borrowed from the Zen teacher, Charlotte Joko Beck. And this is the mantra of ABC, which stands for A Bigger Container. And this means recognizing when we've gone into that contraction and making more space, making more room, softening and opening So we can do this quite literally and physically, A, B, C, make a bigger container, just by sitting up a little straighter, softening the shoulders, opening up the chest, breathing a little deeper, inviting some softening in the face. So if there's a frown, just softening the forehead, the eyes, and the jaw, and then coming further down the torso to relax the chest and the belly. So ABC is beginning to make that bigger container in the context of the body. And sometimes that helps to soften the reaction. If it's very intense, we might need to expand the container to include the whole room. 
So you might open your eyes for a moment and let that bigger container become the whole space of the room that we're in. Or if we're outside, we can expand to look at the vastness of the sky. Or if you're a visual person, you might imagine that tightness in the body being dissolved with a golden light or fine vibrations of warm energy. So you're just doing, experimenting creatively to do whatever you can to release the physical, the mental contraction by surrounding it with space. So an analogy for this is when we contract around a difficulty, it's a bit like putting a wild horse in a small corral. The wild horse goes crazy and the energy seems very intense in that confined space. But if we let that same horse out into a bigger meadow, the energy is still the same, but it feels much more manageable because of the space around it. So A, B, C, create a bigger container. Metaphorically, let that wild horse play in a broad meadow. So sometimes we explore this and we recognize that the intensity reduces and passes away of its own accord. Other times, if the mindfulness is not so strong and the investigation is not so strong, we can find ourselves getting overwhelmed by the emotion. And then we might need to practice a different strategy similar but different, the strategy of touch and go. And this means just touching in to the afflictive emotion, feeling it in the body, the heart, the mind, for just a few minutes, and then going. And going means metaphorically or literally bowing to that mind state before consciously, deliberately, moving the attention somewhere else. So in this context, go might literally mean going away to do something else that is pleasant, nourishing, restorative. Or if that's not possible for some reason, we can go, we can move our attention away from the painful reaction and instead turn to whatever might be pleasant in the moment. So perhaps starting with the body, just noticing. We can train in using Vedana feeling tone skillfully in this way. So if there's a lot of physical pain, we might go to anywhere in the body that's pleasant. Or if that feels too difficult, we can bring to mind a pleasant memory as an antidote. So we might go to a specific situation in the past where we felt safe and whole, and happy, and at ease. And we try to recreate that memory as vividly as we can. So these are all ways of what we can call titrating the dose of our exposure to what's painful. So titrating is a medical term that's used in reference to finding the right dose of a drug, just enough to be effective, but not so much that it has toxic side effects. And in the same way, we're trying to titrate or modulate or moderate our exposure to these difficult emotions or possibly traumatic memories. So we begin with just very tiny doses doses of them. And one way we can keep the dose small is by limiting our exposure in terms of time. So again, if we choose to investigate something that's difficult, we might begin by setting a timer, maybe just for 30 seconds, maybe even just 10 seconds. And we might say, okay, I will be with this shame or rage or fear or sadness for 10 seconds. And we touch into how it feels in the body, the heart, the mind. Ten seconds. And then when the timer goes off, again, we might bow and then go and do something completely different, ideally pleasant, 
nourishing. And then later on we might come back and try the same thing for 15 seconds or 30 seconds. So we're taking small bites, gradually digesting and metabolizing. So we can think of this process of touch and go as similar in a way to taking a strategic withdrawal. And again, this is a form of investigation, sensing in how is our capacity to be with this now. And if we recognize we're starting to lose our capacity, then it's skillful to take a strategic withdrawal. So again, we're turning to something pleasant to help come back to balance. It's not cheating to do this. Sometimes people think that we're supposed to drill down into our deepest, darkest, most intense traumas and stay there in order to somehow nuke them out of existence. But if you hopefully recognize that attitude is rooted in aversion and it's usually not helpful, it can even be re-traumatizing. So we need again to take those small doses and take a strategic withdrawal to regroup, to come back to balance. So we're looking to balance out the exposure to what's difficult with experiences that are soothing, nourishing, help us stay centered and grounded. And here on retreat at the Forest Refuge, Perhaps it's things like going for a walk in the woods. Maybe you have a favorite tree that you like to sit under or a favorite rock that you like to lie on. It means simply taking a cup of tea or a short rest, maybe a warm shower, possibly reading a book or listening to an inspiring talk or journaling. So just finding what you can, being creative, finding these strategies to come back to balance. And sometimes people worry, well, that sounds self-indulgent. Shouldn't I be like doing it full pedal? What do they say? Pedal to the metal. But this is not self-indulgent if you're doing what you're doing with full awareness, meta-infused awareness bringing in the awakening factor of investigation and helping yourself to stay balanced. So we have these strategies of ABC, making a bigger container, touch and go, moderating our exposure to the mental states that are painful, and then taking a strategic withdrawal if we're in danger of getting overwhelmed. Even with those strategies, sometimes they're not enough. And in my own practice, there's one further approach that's been, at first, very challenging, but eventually extremely powerful, and that's self-compassion. So self-compassion is a universal antidote to all forms of pain and suffering. And its power can't be overestimated. And yet many people these days, they struggle to offer compassion to themselves. And so if we find it challenging again, we might need to just approach it very gently, not trying to blast through our defenses against the compassion, but giving yourself permission to find your own way in. So it might be something very simple, just briefly placing a hand on your heart and just acknowledging your own sensitivity, responsive aliveness, steadying yourself. Sometimes that's all that's needed or all that you're capable of at that time, and that's okay. For other people, or maybe at other times, using some phrases can be supportive. And in my own practice, I developed a set of phrases that helped me to notice, is there some resistance to the pain? 
but also to remind me of the purpose of turning towards it, which is to help the reactivity to soften and eventually release. So the phrases I use are, I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. And may I know peace. I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release, and may I know peace. And if the phrases perhaps feel too long, at times you might just shorten them to aware, care, release, peace. And of course, you can develop your own phrases if you don't already have some. For some people, words tend to get in the way, and some people might be more visual. And so you might imagine being in the presence of someone who's been kind to you, someone who's taken care of you or supported you, or directly offered you compassion in some way. And if you can't think of an actual being who's offered you compassion, or perhaps if there's some complication there, you could also bring to mind an inspiring public figure. Maybe His Holiness the Dalai Lama, somebody who embodies compassion for you. Or perhaps an archetypal figure such as Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin is the embodiment of compassion in the Zen tradition, and she's known as she who hears the cries of the world. So creatively, imaginatively, you might bring in the energy of those beings. So these are just a few strategies that have been helpful in my own practice And as our capacity to work with these more entrenched patterns, difficult emotions and mind states increases, we experience more and more time when the hindrances, the afflictive states are absent. And in their place, the awakening factors naturally come into play. And at this point, the quality of the investigation factor, it needs to shift to suit the refinement of the mind. So it becomes more subtle, not so much about cognitive mental processes, because the relatively coarse activity of that aspect of the mind, it can interfere with the samadhi. It can disrupt that exquisitely delicate balance that starts to develop between all seven of the awakening factors. So when the mind is in those more refined and still states, at these times the investigation factor, at least in my mind, it sometimes experiences just like a silent question mark. It's a wordless, energetic kind of, I'm doing this with my hand, but it's like an internal just gesture of a question mark without any words or more cognitive thought. And even that much of a reminder, it serves to brighten the mind and to strengthen that attention and interest. And as we keep very lightly investigating, we clearly recognize the absence of the hindrances and how that absence almost literally makes more space, more room in the heart and the mind for all kinds of skillful qualities. The Brahma-Vihara states of kindness or metta, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity, they grow and strengthen alongside our friends, the seven factors of awakening. So again, sati, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, samadhi, 
and equanimity. All of them arising together and in sequence and naturally coming into balance with each other. And so we want to notice that and to notice how the heart-mind feels when these awakening factors are present. Even if they're relatively weak, we let them in, dwell in them, abide in them, even if it's just for a few seconds at a time. Because with practice, these moments of ease and happiness, of peace and freedom, they become more easily available to us. And the heart-mind can more quickly find its way back there to what the Thai meditation master Ajahn Buddhadasa calls temporary nibbana. And this temporary nibbana is temporary freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. And the more we can connect to those moments of temporary nibbana, as he says, eventually they convert to permanent nibbana. And this is the direction that all of this practice is heading in. So I'd like to close with a quote from the suttas that just illustrates the natural momentum of this practice. And it's a set of phrases and analogy that appears over and over in the discourses in relation to how these skillful states set up a positive chain reaction, an organic momentum that flows effortlessly in the direction of freedom. So it says, practitioners, suppose it rains heavily on a mountain top and the water flows downhill to fill the hollows, crevices, and creeks. As they become full, they fill up the pools. The pools fill up the lakes. The lakes fill up the streams. And the streams fill up the rivers. And as the rivers become full, they fill up the ocean. In the same way, a noble disciple has experiential confidence in the Buddha, the teaching, and the Sangha, and the ethics loved by the noble ones. These things flow onwards, and after crossing to the far shore, they lead to the ending of all defilements. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Let the words dissolve. sharing of blessings to close. Sweet goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth and the Lord of death, 
receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain their threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of caring. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and